0: Everybody and welcome back. We're going to start um, on the cardiac system. So cardiovascular system is chapter 13. Um, we're going to go over the study guide and then there's some study questions at the end. So if you open your book to page 277, the first thing that you're going to see is that the cardiovascular system is control of transportation. So it allows the body to move around substances that are vital for homeostasis, which we know is um, keeping our body at a level that it needs to be at for us to be alive. So, um, the next thing that we see is uh, the size, location, and position of the heart. And she did say that we needed to know these. So the two-thirds of the mass of the heart is on the left side of the body and one-third is on the right side of the body. So the reason why um, we only have two lobes on our left side and three on the right um, in our lungs, is because there's more uh, mass of the heart on that side. So the heart's a triangular organ shaped, and it's sized like a closed fist. If you um, hold your fist up, it's kind of shaped like that, and it's got a little point at the end, and that is the apex. So the apex are blunt point at the lower edge of the heart that lies on the diaphragm pointing towards the left. This is where um, you will find your apical heartbeat, and we did do this in checkoff, so it's on... Um, if you're going to the left of your body, it's the fifth intercostal space down at the midclavicular line, so midclavicle. clavicle um, Heart is positioned in the thoracic cavity between the sternum in the front and the thoracic vertebrae in the back. Um, and an apex is a good place for CPR, so ca- cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And this, um, if you keep a rhythmic compression of the heart in this way, that um, you can maintain blood flow in cases of cardiac arrest combined with effective artificial respiration. So the point is to... Um, to save somebody's life, so this is a place that you want to um, hit very well. This is a, a good place to pump that blood. So, next we're gonna go down to the functional anatomy. So, your heart has chambers, and these are hollow organs. And there's a petition or partition that divides them into the right and left sides. Um, and so, remember to keep an anatomical uh, position when you're looking at the heart. Remember that it would be facing you. Remember what's left and remember what's right so you don't get things mixed up. So the four cavities that the, the heart has are two upper chambers called atria and two lower chambers that are ventricles. So the atriums are on top and the ventricles are on bottom. The atria receives blood. Um, these are the receiving chambers and the ventricles are discharging blood. So these are the discharge chambers. So atria are a lot smaller than ventricles and the walls are thin and less muscular. They also have like ear like extensions called auricles. Um, And like we said, the receiving chambers. So blood enters the heart through the veins that open to the atria and ventricles are going to be the dischargers. Um, So I'm going to keep going. We are on page 279 if you're following along in the book. So each heart chamber is named according to its location. So if you're looking at it in an anatomical position, um, you're going to be able to see that it is um, directly across from what matches it, if that makes sense. Uh, all right, so the wall of each heart chamber is composed of cardiac muscle tissue, and this is myocardium, so I just call this heart tissue or heart muscle um, myocardium, my heart. So um, the interatrial septum separates the atrium, and the intraventricular septum separates the ventricle, so that should be pretty easy to remember because the word is in the word. Um, chambers of the heart are covered in smooth muscle tissue called endocardium. Two pericardial layers glide over each other without friction when the heart beats. Um, and this is because there's uh, it's a serious membrane with moist, uh, slippery surfaces. And so this is to keep the heart from rubbing roughly. We want everything to run smoothly while inside of us. Um, and the infl- if there's an inflammation of the endocardium, this is endocarditis. Itis meaning um, infl- inflammation of something. So we also have, um, it mentions clots. A thrombus would be a stationary clot and a bolus would be a moving clot. So if you have a thrombus clot, uh, the way that I like to think of, of this is the um, station. It's going to stay stationary, like the train station thrombus. Um, that's a clot that's going to stay stationary in a bolus. I think of a bol- uh bus moving bus. So this thr- uh, this type of clot is going to be moving as a bus would move. Um, so I kind of broke down in the study guide, the pericardium, the heart's covering. So it's broken down into two different layers. The uh, visceral ep- pericardium or epicardium is the inner layer of it. And the outer layer is the parietal pericardium. Um, and so it kind of gives you an example of um, visceral as kind of covers the heart like the skin of an apple. And the parietal is allowing room for the heart to beat. Um, and then it goes on to tell us the inflammation of the pericardium is pericarditis. Again, itis meaning inflammation of. So moving right along. Um, now we're looking at heart action. And I kind of just broke this part down into a chart as well. It helps to make it a little bit easier. But basically, your um, your heart beats or it contracts atria first and blood is sent um, through the ventricles. It's going to be forced to the ventricles. Then the ventricles are going to contract second um, and then the blood is going to be sent out of the heart. So, we do need to keep in mind that atria contract at the same time and ventricles contract at the same time that they're letting out of different places. So, um, valves have three flaps and semilunar valves have two flaps. So semilunar is shaped like a half moon. If you're looking at a picture of it, there's a picture on 280. Um, and then we have chordae tendineae and these are the string-like structures that are attached to the flaps of the AV valve. So basically these are the puppeteer strings that are going to pull these valves in the heart to allow them to contract and to, um. To send blood out, so the our semilunar valves are between each ventricular chamber and its large artery that carries blood away from the heart when it contracts. Um, So this is just telling you a placement. Ventricles like atria contract together, so the two semilunar valves open and close at the same time. Um, Pulmonary semilunar valve is at the beginning of the pulmonary artery and allows blood going to the lungs to flow out of the right ventricle during systole and prevents backflow during diastole. And so we see aortic semilunar valve is at the beginning of the aorta and allows blood flow out of the left ventricle up into the aorta, but prevents backflow into this ventricle because we don't want, um, I believe the word for that is regurgitation, but we don't want backflow coming back to the heart because it needs to go out so that we can function. So now we're going to go down to heart sounds, and this is going to help when we get to our um, electrocardiograms. So there's a lub up and this is a rhythmical and repetitive sound of the heart. So the lub is the first sound that you're going to hear and it's caused by the vibration and abrupt closure of the AV valves as the ventricles contract. Closure of the AV valves prevent, prevent blood from backflowing into the atria during contraction of the ventricles. So lub is closing the AV valves and these are two AV valves closing at the same times um, and as well as the semilunar valves are going to close at the same time. So the first sound is longer in duration. It has a lower pitch the pause in the "loved up sound is shorter than after the second sound of uh, systole. So DUP is the second sound that you hear, and this is caused by uh, both simulinar valves when the ventricles relax or diastole. So the DUP is the closing of simulinar valves. And you're going to hear these with a stethoscope. This is what they use to listen to heart sounds. And if you hear an abnormality in a normal loved dup heart sound, this is called a heart murmur. Um, fun fact, heart murmurs are actually normal in children up to a certain age um, Then when it would become a problem. But it's actually pretty common for children to have these. So if you're looking at the study guide on the website, I made a 12-step chart. Um, our teacher specifically asked us to add an extra into step six. So I'm going to go ahead and just read through this. But an easy way to remember blood flow through the heart is that oxygen-poor blood is going to start on the right side of the heart. And it's going to go into the inferior and superior vena cava. And you can see these on pictures um, on page 280. They're going to go through the right atrium. And then they're going to go into the tricuspid valve or AV atrioventricular valve um, to the right ventricle. Now we're in the bottom half of the right side of the heart. Um, Then pulmonary semilunar valve. um, And this is um, getting ready to head back out of the body. Then it's going to go into the pulmonary trunk. This is what Ms. Um, McGeehy added because she wants us to know that it has to go through the trunk to get to the pulmonary artery. So pulmonary artery is number six. So now um, the blood has now gone to the lungs to add oxygen and to mess around with carbon dioxide so we're doing a this is enriching it to be able to send it out to do the rest of the work so we have the oxygen poor blood has now gone through the right side of the heart out of the pulmonary trunk and artery to the lungs now it's coming back in as oxygen rich blood and now we're on the left side of the heart so it's going to start in pulmonary veins and these are actually the only Actually, I'm sorry. Pulmonary veins are some of the biggest veins, but they're pulling the blood, oxygen rich blood in to the left atrium. And then we're going down to the bicuspid or mitral valve. This is the valve that it's going to pass through. Then it's going to be into the left ventricle, down through the aortic semilunar valve and into the aorta, which will then send it out um, to the body where it will be distributed as a whole. So the atria or aorta, I'm sorry, the aorta is larger, and it's a lot stronger, so these are where you, um, in your arteries, you're going to hear a stronger beat than you would. You don't hear it in a vein, so the aorta has to be very thick. It has to be very strong because it is pulling this oxygen-rich blood, and it's shooting it as hard as it can through your entire body, and the, the best way that I know how to memorize this is um, my 11th grade year in high school. I was bitten by a copperhead snake, and I did not really understand how fast your blood flows until something dangerous has been put into it that you can feel. So a few drops of um, venom from this snake hit my bloodstream and it felt like everything was on fire from the tips of my hair to the tips of my toes. And I really thought that I was going to die. But you don't understand how fast blood is being shot from your heart all the way down to your toes and then all the way back and then all the way down to your toes and then all the way back it is consistent um if there's no abnormalities and your heart has to be a very very strong muscle to be able to push this out as hard as it can um and you can also kind of think of it as like a water hose when you turn it on there's like a gush of pressure that comes out and it's going to shoot it out all the way to the end of that really long hose they're usually like 20 something feet um and so that's a good way to memorize it also, that your arteries um, are going to have to be strong. So when the heart beats first, the atria contract at the same time. And this is atrial systole. So your first beat is going to be both of the atriates uh, contracting. And then after the ventricles fill with blood, they contract together. And this is called ventricular systole. Um, so the left and right side of the heart act as separate pumps, but they're going to contract Near the same time, if that makes sense, so the two types of circulation that she wanted us to know is pulmonary circulation and systemic circulation. so pulmonary is the flow of blood from the right ventricle to the lungs and then back to the left atrium and then uh, the systemic circulation is the flow of blood from the left ventricles throughout the body to uh, back to the right atrium and so this is basically this picture with a name. it's just given it a name. So now we're going to look at blood supply to the heart, and this is the bottom of 281. We're about to hit 282. Um, Myocardium, like we said, is the heart muscle, and it must receive blood-containing nutrients and oxygen to function effectively. So if your heart muscle is very weak, um, you're not going to be able to pump that blood, and you're going to have a loss of circulation. So, coronary circulation is another type of circulation, and this is the process of delivery of oxygen and nutrient-rich arterial blood to cardiac muscle tissue and the return of oxygen-poor blood from this active tissue to the venous system. So, the way that I remember that is I will be with a coroner if I do not have coronary circulation. So, this is something that you have to have. Um, also, a good way to remember this is veins are the vehicles for blood to be sent um, to the heart, and then arteries carry blood away from the heart. So, ANA, and then veins are vehicles. So during the, um, I'm sorry, I skipped a part. So blood flows into the heart through uh, two small vessels, the coronary arteries. And these are um, on the front of the heart. If you're looking on page 283, they're really thick arteries that are on the front of the heart. And these are, I believe, what she told us are the um, widow makers. Let me look. I want to make sure that I'm getting that right. I'm going to come back at the end and clarify, but I'm pretty sure that that's what she said was the um, widow maker. So the, um, during ventricular systole, the myocardium is contracting and putting pressure on the coronary artery. So little blood can enter them. So imagine um, putting, let's say, painting a balloon, painting a unblown up balloon, and then you put air into it. That, paint on the side of the balloon is going to kind of start to split. It's going to have pressure on it. So um, that's how I like to think of these coronary arteries. They're going to be really pressed thin while the heart's contracting. Um, So, Embolism is an obstruction of the blood vessel by foreign matter carried into the bloodstream, so a clot. With a clot, blood cannot pass through occluded vessels and can't reach the heart to supply what it normally does, so cells will become damaged or die. And this is very dangerous because those are what we need to be able to carry the oxygen so that we can live. So myocardial infarction is typically called a heart attack and this is tissue death to the muscle of the heart. So common cause of death in middle age and late adulthood. Recovery is possible if the amount of tissue or muscle that was not damaged is able to supply the needs of the rest of the heart. So then we see um, angina pectoris and this is severe chest pain that's caused as a warning sign when the heart muscle isn't getting enough oxygen. So a lot of the time um, people feel this kind of pain in their chest or their left arm. And this is just a warning sign that um, you're not getting enough oxygen, you're not getting enough blood flow. So then we have uh, coronary bypass, and this is a common treatment for those who have had severely restricted coronary artery blood flow. So veins are harvested from the rest of the body and are used to bypass partial blockages in coronary arteries. Um, I can use my grandfather in his example for this. He had his first heart attack when he was 25, and he's had about two or three heart attacks since then, and they have used every um, vein that they can from other parts of his body because he has, um, heart disease. So this is something that he was born with and has struggled with, and they have used every route that they can. And so if anything else happens, it won't look very good, but they are able to harvest veins, um, to kind of reroute circulation so that you can get that blood flow that you're needing. So then we see an angioplasty and this is a device inserted into a blood vessel to force open a channel or blood flow to uh, flow through a blocked artery. So this is kind of like a stent is what they um, what we call it here anyway. So a stent is what they would put in kind of like a little balloon with um, kind of like holes in it. They can, they just open it up like a little fence and it keeps things um, from being stuck. And it kind of opens up those arteries. So after blood uh, passes through the capillary beds in the myocardium, it flows into cardiac veins, which empty into coronary sinus and then back into the right atrium. So we're going to talk about the cardiac cycle. Each complete heartbeat is called a cardiac cycle. Um, And this includes the contraction or systole and relaxation or diastole of atria and ventricles. And each cycle takes about 0.8 seconds to complete if the heart is beating an average rate of 72 beats per minute. Um, most of the atrial blood moves into the ventricles passively before the atria have had a chance to contract, and there's also a moment at the beginning of ventricular contraction where there is no change in volume, and this occurs because it takes a moment for ventricular pressure to overcome the force needed to open the semilunar valves. Um, there's another period of constant volume as the ventricles begin to relax, therefore mitral valves open and blood gushes rapidly from the atria. Um, so we're going to go look at electrical activity of the heart, and this is on page 284. So um, cardiac muscle fibers can contract rhythmically on their own. Um, They must be coordinated by electric signal impulses if the heart is to pump effectively. Um, So that's basically when we get into the um, bundle of Hiss and Purkinje fibers. That's where the electrical signals is kind of most memorable. So the rate of cardiac muscles rhythm can be sped up or slowed down by autonomic nervous signals. And this is where we talked about um, parasympathetic and sympathetic And things that make us do like a fight or flight kind of deal. So the heart has its own built-in conduction system for generating action potential spontaneously and coordinating contractions during the cardiac cycle. All cardiac muscle fibers in each region of the heart are electrically linked together. Um, So intercalated discs are the connections that electrically join muscle fibers into a single unit that can conduct an impulse through the entire wall of the heart chamber without stopping. Um, Both atrial walls will contract about the same time because all of their fibers are electrically linked and both ventricular walls will contract about the same time. There's four structures embedded in the wall of the heart um, that specialize in generating strong action potentials and conduct them rapidly to certain regions of the heart while they make sure that the atria contract and the ventricles contract in an efficient manner. So these are the sinoatrial sinoatrial node or SA node, which is the pacemaker, atrioventricular node or AV node. A-V bundle or bundle of hiss, and our um, subendocardial uh, branches, or they're most commonly called the Purkinje fibers. So these are going to hit off in a chain of events that's going to cause this heart to contract. These are the electrical signals that we're talking about. So impulse conduction normally starts a spontaneous action potential in the heart's natural pacemaker. The SA node, um, it spreads to all directions throughout the atrium. And so you can see pictures of this on page 285. It's kind of difficult to understand it in a picture that's not moving because the heart is obviously moving and you want to know what that's doing. So it can be easier if you look up a video. Um, I pr- you know, prefer to look up something on YouTube maybe. That could give you a better idea of how this is working. So um, myocardial fibers are electrically linked together and normally match the activity of fibers that make up the conduction system. So when impulses reach the AV node, it's triggered to relay its own impulse by way of the AV bundle and the subendocardial branches to the ventricular myocardium, um, causing the ventricles to contract. So a ventricular beat follows each atrial beat. And so this... um, Let's see. If you're looking at page 285 and you can find the um the SA node, the pacemaker. This is like the heart's um generator if you will. It's going to make sure that it's um keeping the heart pumping. I like to think of it like that. Basically, a short way to remember the conduction system through the heart is like five steps. It's going to go from the AV node, or I'm sorry, the SA node down to the AV node. Down through the bundle of Hiss, which is going to be in your um, the septum of your heart, into the bundle of Hiss branches. And this is where you're going to kind of see them vine out. And then the very ends of those are the Purkinje fibers. And this is how there is conduction through the heart. And this is what causes the heart to contract. So let's move on to endocarditis. Um, or myocardial infarction can damage the heart's conduction system and disturb its rhythmic beating. So this is called a heart block where impulses are blocked from getting through the ventricles resulting in ventricles reading, um, as much slower in a rate than normal. So a treatment for heart block can be like implanting an uh, artificial pacemaker in the heart an electrical device that causes ventricular contractions at a fast rate enough to maintain an adequate uh, circulation of blood. So my great grandmother had one of these, um, always thought it was super cool that she had like a little box in her chest um but if she, her heart ever was to give out it would shock her and so obviously this is pretty painful but it's an attempt to um squeeze that heart really quickly and get those ventricles contracting again and another thing you'll see in a lot of tv um Grey's Anatomy a lot of shows like that will be um if you don't have something like that around uh I'm not gonna do this unless I'm for a thing that I need to or I'm instructed to but if someone's heart has stopped and you need to give it that shock, a lot of people will slam their chest onto their patient's, um, slam their hand onto the patient's chest, and this will just give it like a quick kick to get those ventricles contracting again so blood can get flowing. So, um, and we're going to look at electrocardiographs. She didn't really want us to know how to read these, but she did want us to know what they were. So heart con- conduction system generates tiny electrical currents that spread through surrounding tissues and eventually to the surface of the body. So the electrical signals can be picked up um, on visible tracings in an electrocardiograph. So this is a graphic record of the heart's electrical activity obtained using an electrical cardiograph apparatus or ECG or EKG. So normal ECG tracing has three very characteristic deflections or waves called a P wave, a QRS complex, and a T wave. And these deflections represent electrical activity that regulates the contraction or uh, relaxation of the atria or ventricles. So if you're looking at the study guide, I made a small thing on here that I pulled from Medcoms that we had to watch and ATIs talking about a normal electrocardiograph. Um, And it's really not as complicated as you would think it would be. I mean, they gave it like a letter of, of the alphabet name, and it seems like it's going to be super extra, but it's really not. So the P wave at the beginning that you see this little sand dune, it's going to be the atrial depolarization. The QRS complex is going to be depolarization of the ventricles. Um, PR interval is atrial depolarization and conduction through the AV node. Um, T wave is repolarization of the ventricles. QT interval is depolarization and repolarization of atriums. And PR is the length of time it takes for electrical impulse to travel from the atria to the ventricle. So basically, this is telling you when the heart is relaxing, when the heart is contracting, and what's opening and what's closing. So depolarization describes the electrical activity that triggers contraction of the heart muscle. So this is us getting ready. Repolarization begins just before the relaxation phase of the cardiac muscle activity. Um, And ECG deflections. Uh, begin before myocardial contractions, not during these contractions. And depolarizations trigger contractions. And a trigger always comes before the event that is triggered. So we have to know that depolarization comes first. Um, Damage to cardiac muscle tissue that's caused by a myocardial infarction or disease affecting the heart conduction system results in um, very distinct changes on the ECG. You're going to be able to see if there's a blockage because it's not going to be showing up properly on this reading. So ECG tracings are extremely valuable in diagnosis and treatment of heart disease. Um, Now we're going to look at cardiac output. So um, CO is um, the volume of blood pumped by one ventricle per minute, and it averages about five liters in a normal resting adult. That's five large containers of Mountain Dew. That's how I like to think of it. (laughs) So cardiac output is determined by the heart rate and stroke volume, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, But heart rate refers to the number of heartbeats uh, cardiac cycles give per minute. The stroke volume refers to the volume of blood ejected from the ventricles during each beat. And the heart rate is determined mostly by the natural rhythm that the heart is created by the heart's conduction system. So normally decreased CO can result in fatigue or a significant drop in CO, um, even death. So um, heart rate... The autonomic nervous system may alter the heart's rhythm to increase or decrease heart rate. So this is meaning if if you're in a fight or flight state, if you're really amped up, your heart's going to be racing. Your heart rate is going to be higher. And if you're kind of chilling out, maybe you're taking a bubble bath, it's going to be a decreased heart rate. It's going to be very slow. So neurons of the sympathetic cardiac nerve release the neurotransmitter norepinephrine, which causes the SA node to increase its usual pace and thereby increase heart rate. So if we know... Norepinephrine is probably one of the most used um, things in television, and we're going to say push one of epi. This is a, um, it's going to amp you up. I'm trying to think of what the word is for it. Um, uh, I can't think of the word. It starts with an A. But this is, um, it's going to get your heart beating really fast. So if somebody's kind of slipping into like a coma kind of deal, norepinephrine would get that heart pumping a lot faster. Um, so parasympathetic division of the ANS slows down the HR, and that's if you're chilling out. Neurons of the vagus nerve or cranial nerve release acetylcholine to decrease the pace of the SA node. And remember that um, the vagus nerve is located inside of your rectum, and this can drop your heartbeat. It can cause a whole bunch of crazy stuff to go wrong, and it's connected to your um, cranial cranial nerve, we don't want to mess with that vagus nerve. This is why when we give enemas, we point it in a certain direction so that we don't mess with that. So the balance between antagonistic influence of sympathetic and parasympathetic signals to the heart can be shifted by a variety of factors. When blood um, CO2 levels rise during exercise, there's a reflective rise in heart rate. So this is an attempt of the body to restore homeostasis of blood gases. So we see that our body's losing stuff and we need to come back in and try and help that out. Um, A sudden drop in blood pressure triggers a reflective increase in heart rate as the body attempts to restore normal blood flow out of the heart. Um, And stress can also cause a sudden increase in heart rate so that the skeletal muscles will be ready to resist or avoid the stressor. Various dysrhythmias can affect heart rate by disrupting the normal rhythm of the heart. Um, So we're going to look at stroke volume, and this is over on page 287. Um, The volume of blood ejected by the ventricles is determined by the blood Uh, volume of blood returned to the heart by the um, veins or venous return. So generally, the higher the venous return, the higher um, the stroke volume. So venous return can change when the volume of blood changes. um, As dehydration or blood loss due to hemorrhage, this is going to affect the stroke volume. Uh, Various hormones can influence total body Total blood volume and affect stroke volume. Movement of skeletal muscles, including breathing, influence pressure on veins, which increase venous blood flow and increase the rate of venous return. Um, and the strength of myocardial contraction also helps determine the stroke volume. So now we're going to keep going to page 288. Um, Well, we're going to finish up stroke volume. Uh, Ion imbalances can affect muscle fiber function and impair contraction. So this would decrease stroke volume. Valve disorders, coronary artery blockage or myocardial infarction decrease stroke volume and may decrease um, cardiac output. So I'm going to go into that a little bit later. It's in our questions at the end. And it just explains it a little bit different. So, um, the different blood vessels that we have, um, arterial blood is bumped from the heart through a series of large distribution vessels, arteries, and so the aorta is the largest artery, and it's the huge one that you see on the pictures of your heart, and it's usually red. So, arteries subdivide and blood flows into vessels that become progressively smaller arteries until they enter tiny arterioles that control blood flow to microscopic exchange vessels called capillaries. So, we can just think of this in a few steps. It's going to be arteries to um, arterioles, and then um, capillaries. So in capillary beds, the exchange of nutrients and respiratory gases occur between the blood and tissue fluid around the cells. Um, Blood exits from the capillary beds and then enters the small venules, which join other venules and increase in size, becoming veins. So venules are just teeny, teeny, tiny pieces of veins that um, come together to form one. So the large veins are called sinuses. Um, So your superior vena cava and inferior vena cava are sinuses. And these are, okay, so arteries carry blood away, and veins carry blood to your heart. Um, so arteries carry blood away, veins carry toward, capillaries um, carry blood from the tiny arterioles into venules, and the aorta carry blood out of the left ventricle of the heart, and the vena cava returns blood to the right atrium after the blood has circulated through the body. So this goes back to our little step, like 12-step chart. Um, now we're going to look at the structure of these and this is going to be broken down on page 289 and this is just going to help you understand, um, how strong these are, how strong this is of a system to be able to carry these things and what has to happen for this to be able to take place. So, um, there's three coats or layers that are found in both arteries and veins. And so the outer or external layer is the tunica externa, the middle layer is the tunica media. And the inner layers, the tunica, intima. So literally, it is not going to be hard to remember. External is the externa. Middle is the media. Inner is intima. Um, So that won't be very hard to memorize. So they're made of connective tissue fibers, which reinforce the wall of the vessel so that it won't burst under pressure because it's a lot of pressure in your heart trying to send blood all the way down to your tippy toes. So connective fibers also connect to the extracellular matrix of surrounding tissues to help hold the vessel in place. Um, the middle layer is, or middle coat, this muscle layer is much thicker in arteries than veins. And the thicker muscle layer in the artery wall is able to resist great pressures generated by um, ventricular systole. So in arteries, the tunica media plays a role in maintaining blood pressure and controlling blood distribution. Um, it's a smooth muscle, so it's contracted by um, the NS. And it also sometimes includes a thin layer of elastic fiber tissue. So smooth muscle cells um, that in the circle of arterial walls may contract or relax to regulate how much blood will flow into the capillary bed. So you can, um, well, not you can control this, but the um, diameter of these is going to affect different things as we're going to read later on. And that'll be on page 299. So the inner layer um, lines arteries and veins It's a single uh, layer of squamous epithelium cells called endothelium that lines the inner surface of the entire cardiovascular system. So that's important to know. The tunica enema sometimes um, includes a thin layer of elastic fiber tissue, and it's equipped with pockets that act as one-way valves. Um, So they will prevent the backflow of blood due to gravity, uh, muscle contractions, and other forces that would keep blood flowing in one direction so that it's not regurgitating back to where it doesn't belong. These venous valves also allow veins to act as supplemental pumps that help maintain venous return of blood flow to the heart. Um, So, stretching, walking, and other activities help improve blood circulation and prevent formation of thrombus in the veins or thrombi. So, this is going to keep things moving smoothly. You're not sitting and having things build up in your arteries and your veins because that's going to cause a blockage and your heart's not going to be able to get that oxygen So when a surgeon cuts into a body, only arteries and arterial veins and venules can be seen. You can't see the teeny, teeny, tiny parts. So capillaries can't be seen. They're microscopic. Um, They're extremely thin with one layer of flat endothelial cells that compose the capillary membrane. Um, And the walls of these are composed with one layer, um, the tunica enema. And some uh, substances such as glucose, oxygen, CO2, hormones, and waste can quickly pass uh, through it on their way from cells. So functions, um, together, arteries, capillaries, and veins all conduct blood around the body's circulatory route. So they're just there for different reasons. Um, We'll say they're different bus stations on the way to the desired um, destination. So arteries and arterioles... um, are they're going to distribute blood from the heart to capillaries in all parts of the body? Um, constricting or dilating arterioles help maintain arterial blood pressure in a normal level, and arterial pressure is a major force in keeping blood flowing. So, in capillary exchange, we I broke this down into um, three different steps. So I have. One, um, the arterial end of the capillary, the outward driving force of blood pressure is larger than the inwardly directed force of osmosis, and fluid moves out of the vessel. At the venous end of the capillary, the inward driving force of osmosis is greater than the outwardly directed and of hydrostatic pressure, so fluid enters the vessel. About 90% of fluid leaving the capillary at the arterial end is recovered by the blood before it leaves the venous end, so the remaining 10 is recovered by the venous blood, eventually by way of lymphatic vessels, and that comes later. So capillary function as exchange vessels carrying out a central function of the cardiovascular system. Glucose and oxygen move out of the blood and capillaries into interstitial fluid and into the cells. Um, Carbon dioxide and other substances move in opposite direction to the capillary blood from the cells. So we're going to go over um, fluid is also exchanged between capillary blood and interstitial fluid and two opposing forces that influence capillary exchange are osmosis and filtration. If you remember, we talked about these before. These are both um, passive, um, not active. They're both passive. So osmosis is the passive movement of water when some solids cannot cross the membrane and filtration is the passive movement of fluid resulting from hydrostatic pressure gradient, which is going to come later. Um, so at the arterial end of a capillary, the outwardly directed forces are dominant and tend to move fluids from the blood t- or from blood to the tissue. So at the venous end of a capillary, the inwardly directed forces are greater and tend to move fluids from tissue to the blood. Excess fluid tissue not moved to the blood are collected by the lymphatic system to be eventually returned to venous blood. So factors that affect osmotic pressure like plasma albumin levels or hydro- uh, hydrostatic pressure like blood pressure drive filtration. Um can disrupt capillary exchange that might result in dehydration or overhydration of tissues. And one or the other is not a good thing. You want to be just right. So veins and venules um, we're going to go to next. Venules and veins collect blood from the capillaries and return it to the heart. So these are just little messengers they're going to bring it back. Larger veins also serve as blood reservoirs because they carry blood under low pressure than arteries. They can also expand to hold a larger volume of blood or constrict to hold a much smaller amount. So these are not um, Not as thick as the arteries, but they do still serve a very well purpose. Um, So external pressure can turn veins, which have one-way valves, into pumps that help return blood to the heart. Um, Now we're going to look at routes of circulation. So blood flows through vessels that are arranged in a complete circuit or circular pattern. And a route of circulation as a particular set of circular pathways, such as from the heart to the lungs and back, or from the heart to the particular organ and back. So then I have um, another drawing on here for systemic and pulmonary routes of circulation and it's pretty much a um, trace through the heart like we did before so you have oxygen poor blood coming into the right side of the heart through the vena cava to the right atrium to the tricuspid valve to the right ventricle to the pulmonary semilunar valve to the pulmonary trunk to the pulmonary artery then it's going to the lungs so this is just a breakdown of the lungs it's going to be through the arteries arterioles capillaries venules and then the veins then to the left side of the heart, so this is now oxygen, it's now been exhausted in the lungs, and it needs to have oxygen in it, so it's going to the left side of the heart, through the pulmonary veins, to the left atrium, to the bicuspid valve, to the left ventricle, to the aortic semilunar valve, to the aorta, and now this oxygen-rich blood is going to go back out, it's going to go out of the aorta, to the arteries of each organ, to the arterials of each organ, to the capillaries of each organ venules to the veins and then back to um, the right side of the heart is oxygen poor blood because it's really worn out by the time it gets back so now we're going to look at hepatic portal circulation so i have another drawing that i put on the study guide and basically it's just a couple steps um that i broke it down into so hepatic portal circulation blood is going to flow from the spleen stomach pancreas gallbladder intestines and is recruited through the hepatic portal veins if you think about it um your stomach can have all kinds of junk in it. It depends on what you ate, but you can have medicine in there. You can have food in there. You could have ate something that's like a chemical, something that's bad for you. Um, pancreas, gallbladder, your intestines can have things that, you know, that might have gone past the stomach and they're kind of snuck through to the intestines. So you want to make sure that that's really cleared out. You want to look at your liver as a security guard and it's going to kind of be the gatekeeper of this situation. So blood from these organs could contain chemicals, alcohol, nutrients, preservatives, etc., So the hepatic portal vein basically allows the liver to have first dibs on the blood before passing it along. It just wants to make sure everything's clear before it passes it out. So blood is filtered in the liver, allowing it to, um, allowing it to filter out all of what it needs. And then the processed blood exits the liver through the hepatic portal veins and joins the rest of the blood, um, in the inferior vena cava. So that's pretty simple. Um, now we're going to look at fetal circulation. She doesn't really want us to know much about this, but she does want us to know, um, that the umbilical cord, what the umbilical cord and placenta are, and know that the umbilical cord can be used for an IV solution for a baby. Um, Next, we're going to go down to hemodynamics, and this is a set of processes that influence the flow of blood. So the main force that drives continuous flow of blood through the circulation, or through circulatory routes, is blood pressure. So blood pressure is the push of blood as it flows through the cardio system. It's literally the pressure of blood. Um, Blood pressure exists in all blood vessels, but is highest in the arteries and lowest in the veins. Um, And then if you look at figure uh, 12-13-21, it shows the blood pressure gradient and blood flow. And I kind of went ahead and answered these at the end, these questions, and it gave a better example. So the blood pressure gradient lets you know how blood pressure lessens as it goes. So we have arteries, arterioles, capillaries, and then it lowers on from there. So basically, you'll be able to read it better. Um, So we also see that uh, blood pressure gradient is the difference between two blood pressures. Um, It's also... Uh, for the entire systemic circulation is the difference between the average or uh, mean blood pressure in the aorta and the blood pressure in the termination of the vena cava where they join the right atrium of the heart. Um, so there are normal uh, figures and the uh, abbreviation for high blood pressure or hypertension is HTN. So she did this. We could see this on the test as well in um, a um clinical setting, excuse me. So Hypertension is bad because if blood pressure becomes too high, it can cause a rupture of one or more blood vessels and the brain, uh, in the brain, this would be considered a stroke. Um, so chronic hypertension can also increase, increase the load on the heart, causing abnormal thickening of the myocardium, which is the muscle of the heart. And this could lead to heart failure. Uh, but low blood pressure can also be dangerous too, because if RTO pressure falls too low, blood won't be able to flow through or perfuse um, in the vital organs of the body. So, circulation of blood and life would cease. Massive hemorrhage drastically reduces blood pressure and can result in death. So, if you've ever seen somebody that's been in a car accident and they have had a major um, injury, they're losing a lot of blood. Their blood pressure is super, super low, and it's called bottoming out. Um, And this would be when your blood's uh, not circulating to the rest of your body because you're losing it. So factors that influence blood pressure will be blood volume, strength of each heart contraction, heart rate, um, thickness of blood, which is viscosity. So the direct cause of blood pressure in the volume is the blood in the vessels. The larger the volume of blood is in the arteries, the more pressure the blood exerts on the walls of the arteries or the higher the um, arterial blood pressure will be. So less blood that there is in the arteries, the lower the blood pressure tends to be. Um, Hemorrhage demonstrates this relationship between blood volume and blood pressure. Um, it's also pronounced uh, loss of blood and it's discre- decreased would cause the BP to drop or uh, bottom out. Major sign of hemorrhage is rapidly falling BP. This lets you know that there's probably something going on inside. Um, diuretics or drugs that promote water loss by increasing urine output are also used to treat hypertension. So there's like a water loss from the body um, and this causes it to uh, drop. So volume of blood. The arteries is determined by how much blood the heart pumps into the arteries and how much blood the arterioles drain out of them. Diamety, diameter of the arterioles play an important role in determining how much blood drains out of the arteries into arterioles. So strength of heart contractions also has to do with this. Um, strength and rate of heart uh, heartbeat affect cardiac output and blood pressure. So each time the left ventricle contracts, it squeezes a certain blood volume or stroke volume. Um, into the aorta and into other arteries and the stronger each contraction is the more blood it pumps to the aorta and arteries so the weaker it is the less blood it pumps less oxygen strength of the heartbeat affects blood pressure stronger increases weaker decreases Um, so then we have heart rate or the rate of a heartbeat which may also affect arterial blood pressure when the heart beats faster more blood enters the aorta and so the arterial volume and blood pressure would increase Um, And this is true only if stroke volume does not decrease sharply when the heart rate increases. So often when the heart beats very fast, each contraction of the left ventricle takes place so rapidly that there's such a little time for um, blood to fill. And therefore, it squeezes out much less blood uh, than usual in the aorta. So an increase in the rate of heartbeat um, increases blood pressure. Increase in the rate um, decreases blood pressure or decrease would decrease blood pressure. Whether a change in the heart rate produces a similar change in blood pressure depends on whether the stroke volume also changes and by how much. Um, so this also has to do with blood viscosity or how thick your blood is. Um, if it's less thick than normal, it's your BP is going to decrease. So if a person suffers a hemorrhage, fluid moves from the blood. Um, from the interstitial fluid, and it dilutes the blood. After hemorrhage, a transfer of whole blood or plasma is preferred to infusion of normal saline because you want it to be just as thick. So saline solution is not thick, and it cannot keep uh, blood pressure at a normal level. Uh, Polycythemia can occur when oxygen levels in the air decrease, and the body attempts to increase its ability to attract oxygen to the blood, and this happens working in high altitude. So we remember polycythemia is too many red blood cells, um, and if you have a hemorrhage, a lot of the time, your body's going to keep trying to make red blood cells to send them out, and they're going to send out very immature blood cells. You're going to have too much, and this is going to cause you to bleed out even more. Um, resistance to blood flow, peripheral resistance, is affected by many factors, including vasomotor mechanism or vessel muscle contraction and relaxation. Um, so fluctuations in arterial blood pressure um, can be BP varies within a normal range, or normal systemic arterial blood pressure is below 120 over 80 at risk. Central venous pressure, so venous blood pressure within the right atrium, or the low end of the pressure gradient, that drives blood flow. Um, Venous return of the blood to the heart depends on at least five mechanisms. A strong beating heart, an adequate arterial blood pressure, valves in the veins, pumping action of skeletal muscles as they contract, changing pressures in the chest cavity caused by breathing. And now we're going to look at pulse. So pulse is the alternate expansion and recoil of blood vessel walls. Nine major pulse points that are named after the arteries over which they are felt. Um, there's three pulses on the side of the head and neck, and this is superficial temporal artery in the front of the ear. Um, moving on, we have the common carotid artery, which you're going to find in your neck. Um, there's one on each side. Facial artery is the lower margin of the mandible at the point below the corner of the mouth. Um, and There's three on the upper limbs. So you have an axillary, which is your armpit, brachial, which is... Um, where you would find your brachial artery when you're getting ready to take a blood pressure. And then you have radial, which is towards your wrist. Um, Radial pulse is the most commonly accessed because this is less invasive to feeling all over someone's neck or anywhere else. When you come into a room, a patient's room, you're gonna just feel for that radial pulse. Um, Four pulses are in the lower extremities. You have your femoral, um, which is in the groin, popliteal, which is behind and proximal to the knee. Uh, Posterior tibial artery, which is just behind the medial malleus, um, inner bump of the ankle, And dorsal pedis or dorsalis pedis pedis artery, and this is on the front surface of the foot, just below the bend of the ankle. Um, So there was a few things that was discussed deeper in class, and it was letting us know beats per minute. Um, The SA node or pacemaker is anywhere from 60 to 100 beats per minute. The AV node is 40 to 60 beats per minute. A bundle of Hiss is 30 to 40 beats per minute, and the Purkinje fibers is 15 to 40 beats per minute. Um, Bradycardia is below 60 beats per minute. Tachycardia is above 100 uh, beats per minute. And people who have heart attacks before 50 have a lot less collateral circulation. So we have reached the end of this chapter. I would definitely suggest doing the quick checks. Um. I don't know how everyone's been studying, but the best suggestion that I can give is to start at the beginning of the chapter and just read it through mindlessly. Don't pay attention to what you're reading. Just have it cross into your mind and then come back and start at the beginning. Start reading the chapter um, and then stop when you see a quick check and answer those questions to yourself and then continue to go on through each little area until you get to a quick check and keep stopping and reminding yourself of what you're reading. It kind of helps you to just keep things in check. Um, also suggest that you do the, um, kind of read over the summary at the back. It just breaks everything down for you and then do the review questions and the chapter test at the back, as well as the workbook, because these are very helpful. And if you haven't been using the Evolve learning that comes with the front of your book, um, if you open your front cover, there is a link for Evolve or Elsevier.com. And this is, um, the makers of your book. This has all the answers for the quick checks in here, as well as super tiny videos. They're like only a couple seconds long. And so this could give you an example of the heart contracting. And they're super, super helpful because it's not super strenuous. Um, It's a proven fact that people keep an attention span in a a time less than 30 or 15 minutes. So um, if you're like me and it's hard to keep an attention span, I definitely suggest watching the short videos. But I hope that helps. Uh, Have a great day.